the running joke, you know, in our group is even a gorilla can push propofol. That's not a big deal. But really what the gorilla needs to figure out is who is the right patient the gorilla should push the propofol. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PeteScript Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a current PICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a Peds ICU fellow at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the PeteScript Podcast? Absolutely. PeteScript is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at pedscript.com. We're hoping to create a space to further add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out to us. But for today, Zach, who are we talking with? So we're excited to have Dr. Pradeep Kamat back with us on the podcast. Today is part two of a three-episode series. We're going to cover the nuts and bolts of natural airway sedation, including the pre-op assessment, common medications, and how you can make this a comfortable experience for the child and their family. Yes, and he is absolutely the best person to be talking about this. Dr. Pradeep Kamat is an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. He's also a practicing pediatric intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and he's well known for his leadership in pediatric procedural sedation. Absolutely. We're excited and grateful to have him on the podcast today. Let's get right to it. Okay, moving on from the structural issues of how we get pediatric providers doing procedural sedation, how do you think about choosing the appropriate drug for a procedural sedation case? Alice, that's a fantastic question. And this is what we really want residents, fellows coming to their sedation rotation to really put that in their mind. When I am asked to sedate a patient, I always look at what is the procedure being done. Is it a non-invasive, aka painless procedure like in radiology imaging, say MRI, where there's no pain required, but all they need is really immobility on part of the patient? And then the other way to look at it, is this an invasive, painful procedure? For example, bone marrow aspiration biopsy in hemong patients. Okay, those are painful procedures. And you may need a little bit of immobility there too, because if the patient moves and there's a huge needle that's going in their bone, you don't want that patient moving the needle will go somewhere else. So if it's a very painful procedure, yes, go more for analgesia. That's the way I would choose a drug, you know, like choose fentanyl, ketamine. If it's just a simple radiology procedure that is considered non-invasive, non-painful, all you need is immobility. That's when I would go for propofol, especially if they need deep sedation. Or if it's a very short imaging procedure, you know, it's like 20, 30 minutes, I would just even do that with using just dexmedetomidin. And then there are some distressing procedures that cannot be fully classified as invasive, non-invasive, very painful or painless. Classic example is placement of a urinary catheter for a VCUG exam or even a placement of an IV. They're not really painful, but they're very distressing to a child. And so in that case, I mean, choose something like a little PO midazolam or even some inhaled nitrous to kind of decrease the distress for the child. 
I think that's a really helpful mental construct to think about. Is the procedure going to be painful? If so, you're going to need more analgesia. Does the patient need to be very immobile? So you'll need more sedation. And then if it's a really distressing procedure, but not necessarily painful, you're going to need something for anxiolysis. I think it's a, it's a helpful mental construct. So Dr. Kamat, thinking about the type of drug, does the actual drug provide a certain level of sedation or is it a bit more complicated than that? It is, it is actually much more complicated than that. And I do not want listeners to think of, hey, I gave X drug and the patient is at moderate sedation or deep sedation because remember sedation levels, it's a continuum. So even if you give a drug that you think could cause only mild sedation, the patient can slip in towards general anesthesia. So the idea that a drug is causing specific level of sedation is best left alone and not touched. Oh, okay. So what medication specifically are you choosing and how does it change based on the type of case that you're working with? Alice, I wish there was an ideal sedative. Unfortunately, there is none. In an ideal mm-hmm. world with an ideal sedative, you want something that works really fast, something that is safe, doesn't cause much respiratory or hemodynamic issues, and something that the patient can wake up from quickly. But unfortunately, we do not have a single agent that is doing all those things. Like I said, we like to choose drugs based on invasive procedure, non-invasive procedure, immobility required, not required. Our usual go-to drug that comes close to an ideal sedative, but you know, still is not an ideal sedative, is actually propofol. It is really good because it is predictable. It works really fast. I sometimes tell parents, they usually ask me, hey, is this the drug that killed Michael Jackson? I tell them, yes, here we are using it in a very safe, controlled setting. We're not using this at Michael Jackson's home that when he had used it. We're using it in a very safe, controlled environment. And what we are doing is when we use propofol, it has an on-off effect. It works really fast. The off effect, what I mean by that is if we stop giving propofol, the patient should ideally wake up very quickly in case they go in a deep level of sedation. The other drug that we use, my personal favorite to go to when I'm doing painful procedures is actually fentanyl. And you can also use ketamine. A lot of ED docs are very comfortable using ketamine and ketamine is a great drug. I have used it before, but my usual go-to drug is fentanyl. And I do that because there are reversal agents I know how it works. I know how much to use. Many times a patient is going to need a combination of medication, a good sedative agent like propofol, along with a good analgesic agent. And my go-to agent at that time, again, is fentanyl. So a lot of patients, I may use a combination of fentanyl and propofol. For example, the patient who needs a bone marrow biopsy and aspiration, a very painful procedure, needs a lot of immobility as well as analgesia and sedation. So I will use that combination. Now, if I am doing a very short imaging procedure under 30 minutes, mm-hmm. I may just do that using uh, dexmedetomidin. And especially if the patient doesn't need contrast and therefore doesn't need an intravenous cannula or a PIV, I may just give that drug intranasally and, and, oh, wow. and get that procedure done that way. So I think this is really helpful, kind of hearing more of the specifics about each drug and what are its benefits and what are its kind of its minuses, its, its risks. So propofol, shorter cases, that quick on, quick off is really helpful, but keeping in mind that you're not really providing any analgesia. 
On the other hand, you have ketamine and fentanyl that would be helpful for painful procedures, thinking about maybe in the emergency room, if you were reducing a fracture, that would be a good example when you would use that. And then dexmedetomidine, I really liked how you said you would use that intranasally, even to avoid a peripheral IV stick. It's able to provide that sedation and help the baby remain immobile while they're getting their imaging study done. I think that's really neat to hear that. Thinking even more big picture, it seems like one of the most important decisions that you make when you're thinking about outpatient procedural sedation is is figuring out which patient is actually appropriate outside the operating room. How do you think about choosing which patient is appropriate for outpatient sedation? Zach, that's a fantastic question. So the running joke, you know, in our group is even a gorilla can push propofol. That's not a big deal. But really what the gorilla needs to figure out is who is the right patient the gorilla should push the propofol. And I think this is an area of extensive research. There are a few publications coming out on this. So I will tell you the way this process works at my institution. What we have is we do something called as pre-screening. We are trying to figure out a patient whenever they are sent to us for a procedure. Say, for example, let's keep it simple. Let's say the patient needs an MRI of the brain and spine. What we'll do is there are pre-screeners who immediately get the request. They look at the patient. They try to see if the patient has had a previous encounter within the hospital or is this a brand new patient that the hospital has never seen before. If it's a patient that has been in the hospital before, they go to the chart and see if the patient has had any previous sedation or anesthesia. If the patient has had previous sedation, then they are more likely to put that patient in the sedation bucket. If the patient has Mm -hmm. had previous anesthesia encounters for like a simple procedure like an imaging study like MRI, that raises a flag. The pre-screener then talks to the sedation nurses in MRI and says, hey, this patient had an MRI two years ago, but was done by anesthesia. And why is that? So they dig into that a little bit more. And then, you know, there will be some excuse like, hey, the patient had a little neck mass at that time. Airway was compromised. Now the neck mass is completely gone. Maybe the patient could be a sedation candidate this time around. If the nurse is not sure... She will call one of the sedation docs and then a sedation doc will go through the patient's electronic medical records and try to figure out. Many times we will actually call the anesthesiologist and we have a couple of anesthesiologists that we routinely go to for such cases and they will tell us, you know, hey, you can do this patient. Looks like the patient has no snoring now, can lay flat, not a problem. And so then the patient will be moved to sedation. So we have an extensive screening process where it goes from pre-screening, outpatient, scheduler, then it goes to a nurse who is an expert in sedation, and then it comes to the sedation physician. So it's like a three-level before the patient is put either in the anesthesia bucket or in the sedation bucket. I want listeners to be aware that there are some patients that we as sedationists cannot do, and they absolutely need to go to anesthesia. Okay, for example, a kid with a mediastinal mass, I will not touch the kid from a distance. That kid is given to the anesthesiologist. And the second point I want to make here is asking for help is not a sign of weakness. We routinely go to our anesthesiologist and say, hey, do you think we can sedate this kid? Or do you think this is a kid who needs you guys to manage the procedure? And we do that. There's no ego problem in that. We will do that. And I think Mm -hmm. that provides the best care for the patient. Oh, yeah, because that's the knowledge gap, right? Like that's the problem is that the picky providers are not trained in general anesthesia. You have a four-year residency for that. And those are the kids that you're just trying to weed out. Okay, so which children will you typically just not sedate? 
Good question. I think what I would refer your listeners to is to go to a mm-hmm. paper by my colleague, Dr. Jocelyn Grunwell. She did an excellent paper in Pediatric Anesthesia Journal. It is in their June issue of 2016. I really highly recommend all your listeners to review the figure one, which I think will help them mm-hmm. guide which patients can be sedated and which patient need an anesthesia referral. In general, in our practice, any child who has a syndrome or some genetic disease, and they usually come with either very difficult areas or or some complex heart lesion, I would be very, very careful about those patients. I would also be careful Mm -hmm. because as the child grows older with that syndrome, things can get even more difficult. Classic example is mucopolysaccharidosis. Patient with mucopolysaccharidosis is an infant the airway may be easy, but as the child becomes four or five years old, the airway may become more and more difficult. So you have to be very careful about children who have a syndrome, kids who have a mediastinal mass, who are very hypotonic, I would be very careful about. In general, obese kids are not difficult to sedate. And by obese, I mean any patient whose BMI is greater than 95th percentile for their age and height. If they're usually not very difficult to sedate, but what makes them difficult are the comorbidities that they have along with their obesity. For example, if they have had obstructive sleep apnea or if they were premature or if they have a recent upper respiratory tract infection, that can add additional risks to that obesity. Children with a lower respiratory tract infection and pneumonia who have oxygen requirement, we usually will wait for that pneumonia to heal before we go and sedate them. In general, patients who have congenital heart disease, especially cyanotic heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, single ventricle physiology, myocarditis, those are the patients I'll be very, very careful about. And again, I would really refer your listeners to that article by Dr. Grunwell in Pete's Anesthesia. This is what I told you right now is a very short list. There's an extensive Mm -hmm. list in that article, which your listeners can refer to. Oh, yeah. And definitely something that requires deep learning. Yeah, and this is so important. So just to kind of highlight some of the key points that you mentioned. So those syndromic children, maybe who have mid-face hypoplasia or a short neck or retronathia, we don't want to mess with those children in an outpatient sedation suite. Be careful with obstructive sleep apnea, premature babies, those with congenital heart disease, of course. We don't want those babies sedated in outpatient setting. Something I wanted to focus in on that we haven't touched on as much is what about those younger children? How about those less than six months? Are there any key points that we need to keep in mind there? First of all, there's a lot of programs that actually will not sedate kids under three months of age, and they will Mm -hmm. routinely give them to the anesthesiologist. But still, a lot of programs with high volume and a lot of experience will sedate infants who are very small. We published a study at our center, a single center study, a retrospective study, I want to caution you. We found that kids under six months of age who were sedated with propofol, we were successfully able to sedate them for their procedures. But what we found out is they they do have a slightly higher incidence of uh, serious adverse events as well as minor adverse events. They were more prone to have airway obstruction. Again, no one had death or a cardiac arrest, but I think what I'm trying to say here is providers who sedate very small kids need to be really experienced. Mm -hmm. They need to be done early in the morning when there are a lot of resources available. You do not want to sedate a two-month-old at the end of the day when you're left with barely one nurse in a remote location. 
So you may want to do them early in the morning when there are a lot of people around because they will give you a little bit of trouble. They will also give you trouble with the access. I mean, a lot of these small patients, when they kept fasting or what we call as NPO, they may be difficult IV accesses. So you have to kind of figure and factor that into when you're doing the small kids. Yes, they're doable. Yes, they will give you trouble. Yes, be vigilant and use experienced providers to do the sedation. There's even some consideration about requiring inpatient admission if they're still quite young, right? Correct. If, especially if they're less than 60 weeks post-conceptual age, a lot of programs will actually watch them for like 12 hours and it, usually it ends up being overnight and discharged the next day. And many times if I am given a six-week-old to sedate, I will say, hey, why can't I just bundle the kid, feed the kid and put the kid in MRI? And a lot of those small kids will just go to sleep for a good 30, 40 minutes and you can get that procedure done without using sedation. So that may be the best thing for that infant at that point. So I do that all the time. Oh, absolutely. We do not want to mess with an infant that might be apneic after their sedation. All right. So we talked about feed and swaddle for the babies. How has it been sort of reasoning with kids, distracting kids, getting them ready for their procedures without meds? This is a great scenario where we really want our child life specialists to get involved in. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of tricks in their bag that we utilize. First of all, if they need an IV place for contrast, we will usually use some nitrous. And in that nitrous mask, we'll provide some flavored, whatever the child likes. Hey, I like strawberry or like chocolate. They will use that. Essentially bribe that child and kind of say, hey, we're going to reward you with something if you do X and Y. And usually most kids, if their development is normal, like six years and above, typically fall for that and do a great job. Once the IV is placed, the child life will typically show them a little small prototype of an MRI, what an MRI looks like, how the MRI moves. And sometimes we will even take them in the back towards the MRI and put them in an MRI and say, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be laying down here. You do not want to move. We will provide them with movies. And a lot of kids take great pride in choosing the movie they want. They have headphones. They can listen to music. One of my radiology colleagues is actually looking at the use of fancy binoculars where the kid can see some sort of a movie very close. And, and so, yeah, so and, and then there are always other tricks that MRI technologists always use. They usually say, hey, Johnny, if you stay still for 30 minutes, I'm going to give you this Jeep or truck that I have here. Most of the time, the kid will be so fixated on that. They will lay still and get their procedure done. The general take home message is if you have a kid closer to six years and above, it's a short procedure, doesn't involve extensive pain or anything like that. They will do it without re- needing sedation. And child life specialist is really, really useful there. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds very sweet. And what I'm hearing is you need to have multiple options to try to distract the child. So whether that be having child life, maybe bring a pet in or some games to play. And even if needed, maybe a little bit of bribery with a toy. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of PeteScript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcast at gmail.com. 
Check out PeteScript.com for detailed show notes and visit at CritPedes on Twitter and at PeteScript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.